That. Will the pro-Hamas movement kill diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses forever? Fog of war. New and disgusting images this morning. Outcry over pictures of Hamas prisoners fully exposes the left's hypocrisy. I'm asking you, did you take down the posters of the hostages? Yeah, because you're propagating propaganda. Tears for POWs, jeers for victims of Hamas brutality. The Gentleman's A. Yale now hands out perfect grades like they are participation trophies. Heaven's a Yale man. The real reason behind grade inflation is about a lot more than tuition dollars. And Hunter the Hedonist. Hunter Biden indicted for a second time, now facing three felonies and six misdemeanor counts. New charges against Hunter Biden show a lifestyle crazier than Charlie Sheen's. Wow, winning. Will his defender-in-chief finally face the facts. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. We start with breaking news as we come on the air tonight. The presidents of UPenn, Harvard, and MIT still have their jobs for now. The president of UPenn faces the loudest calls for resignation after she couldn't condemn students who called for the genocide of Jewish people. It's Friday night. You never know when someone will try and quietly drop a resignation. We will stay on it. There may be a board meeting on Sunday. First tonight, though, a far more important possibility than just firing three pro-Hamas bigots. The end of DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Maybe it's a little early to have the gravestone say 2023. It might be 2024, but it couldn't come soon enough. The orthodoxy of Ivy League colleges, it's a religious-like commitment to cultural Marxism. Heather McDonald explains this, a most excellent Wall Street Journal piece. DEI drives campus anti-Semitism. Germanding Jews into an oppressed class won't save universities. And here's the quote. Students, meaning students on campus, explain that their hatred for Jews come from what they learn in class. Israel, they learn, is cast as the Western settler colonialist oppressor par excellence. The three amigas in anti-Semitism have all apologized in one way or another for their remarks to Congress on Tuesday, their lack of moral clarity. But the more we listen to their remarks, the less sense they made. You'll remember Congresswoman Elise Stefanik had a very simple question. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. It is a context-dependent decision. We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context. Hmm. It makes no sense, right? person who claims to support diversity and inclusion supports chance of genocide depending on the context. But these women, and so many that pick the, the presidents of Ivy League institutions, the academia class in America, they don't look at the world through a right versus wrong lens. No. The Amigas look at the world through a DEI lens. DEI excludes Jews. To the Amigas, Jews are the oppressors, the privileged, so calling for their genocide, well, may not be that bad of a thing. It requires context. 
It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. What struck us is how all of these women use the same word over and over and over again, context. Eric Desenhall coaches and trains people for appearances before Congress in big TV interviews and joins us now. We appreciate it. Um, You think it's a coincidence that all three use the same word? Uh, No, I don't. I mean, one of the things I've seen in these situations is you have a tension between attorneys and communications people. It is very clear to me, without having been in any of those rooms, that attorneys were at the helm of this conversation. And sometimes a good legal strategy is an awful communication strategy. I mean, we remember when Bill Clinton said, it depends how you define the word is. Not good communications, but it did, it did help him legally. And so what you see here is a very legalese uh, communication designed not to get them into trouble, but it blew up because it, it is devastating rhetoric. Yeah, you say it very legally, and, I, and I, I get that. If they had been charged with a crime or there was some kind of legal jeopardy they faced, this wasn't a grand jury. They're not charged with a crime. They're presidents of universities. Exactly I'm wondering if it wasn't more, wasn't more to, rather than legalese, if it was DEIs, right? If, if they, they were so uh, wedded to this idea of, of looking at the world through the oppressors and the oppressed, uh, rather than right and wrong, they, they just couldn't give up the ghost and were asking their communications people, how do I not get in trouble with the DEI overlords? Well, I, I think that that is an animating factor. But I also think that what is underlying a lot of this is the simple fact that there is not one person in your audience that doesn't know exactly what would happen if there were another minority cohort on campus mm-hmm. who had been treated in this way. We know there would be no discussion of context. There would be no discussion of how anything was worded. You would see a head-rolling jubilee very, very quickly. But that is not what happens when you're dealing with Jewish people. It is evaluated on a completely different curve, and attacks on Jewish people are deemed to be acceptable because Jewish people are perceived to be an elite, not a minority. Therefore, they're supposed to just suck it up and take it, which is not what is expected of other minority groups. Yeah, we were watching video of the Jewish kid who was surrounded and shoved around on the Harvard campus. So far, we've not heard of any uh, punishment uh, for them. Look, we, we don't have to imagine if it was about any other minority group. We know during Black Lives Matter, you couldn't say all lives matter, right? You know, now you can condemn all no. hate, not just not you don't have to condemn anti-Semitism. It's, it's the reverse thing. I thought it was funny. The Harvard uh, woman, we embrace commitment to free expression, even with views that are objectionable, offensive and hateful. Dot, 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 so long as we agree with those views, if we don't agree with those views, well, then we knows what happens to you. Um, you're, you're an expert in the words, right? I'm sorry, words matter. When words amplify distress and pain, I don't know how you could feel anything but regret. Again, no one talks like that without coaching, without, and, and I'm wondering when they were being coached, who is the audience that they were being coached for? 
Well, I think what you have to remember is in organizations like this, people are often talking to each other. This is why you have some of the marketing decisions being made in corporations. When the corporations are not looking at who's buying their product, they are looking at who is sitting in the room with them. And I think what you have here are people who are coaching based upon what will resonate with the other people in the room. They are not uh, crafting these messages based with the large audiences, and they've never had to, simply because they are used to getting applause within these groups. I mean, you have a veterans department official a few uh, last week who came out and went on camera, on Instagram, boo-hoo-hoo, the poor Hamas victims. Can you imagine? And, and she, she, and I called the VA to see what's happened with, uh, with hap- what's happening there, and they said they are looking into it. Can you imagine what would happen if an official of the United States government went boo-hoo-hoo, poor George Floyd, whether or not anybody would be looking into it? We all know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, we definitely do. Because because it happened to people, right? And, and it wasn't even people who said boo-hoo-hoo. It was people who said, I'm not sure that, you know, vilifying all police is a good idea. And we know what happened to them as well. Um, I yep. thought this was interesting, though, because, because I, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like we're at an inflection moment. Um, in the same mm-hmm. way we were during during George Floyd and, and Me Too, and the pendulum was swinging so hard and just was knocking heads uh, off, some some fairly, some unfairly, a lot unfairly. Bill Ackman on the Harvard hiring process. I learned from someone with firsthand knowledge of the Harvard president's search that the committee would not consider a candidate who did not meet the DEI's office criteria. Okay, we are all shortly going to realize that the DEI era is McCarthy era point uh, part two. You have a unique understanding of the human equation. It's why you're so good at your job. Do you agree with them? And if so, why? Oh, I I think that what's happening here is you are dealing with people who have finally been pushed too far and have the power to do something about it. I got a call a few days ago from a survivor of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp who was there with Anne Frank. And he said to me, this is how it begins. When people start talking about context, when people start talking about codes of conduct, when uh, government organizations say we are looking into it, this is the kind of bureaucratic um, uh, locomotive that gets running when you start ceasing to care uh, about what is what is right and wrong. And in somebody yeah. like Bill Ackman and some of the others, these are people who have the power to do something about it. They have the power to do something about it. And and, and rhetorically, it's becoming harder and harder for people to defend. Um, And you're you're watching that kind of in real time. Somehow, uh, being pro-Hamas has finally gotten the DEI people uh, to be exposed um, for what they are. This was a fascinating conversation, Um, really. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Happy to do it. Yeah, good to see you. Speaking of the Ivy League, Yale is now handing out perfect grades like they were participation trophies. A new report finds that 80% of grades at Yale were in the range uh, this last academic year of, well, A. The New York Times headline, nearly everyone gets an A at Yale. All right. In the 2023 school year, nearly 80% of grades at Yale were A's or A minuses. It was even higher during the pandemic at 82% in 2020 to 2021. But it's been growing steadily since 2000, where... 66, 67% now in 2010 got A's. Huh. Grade inflation has been in the discussion in America's top colleges for a long time, but it's shocking with one Yale, Yale professor saying, quote, when we, ac- 
act as though virtually everything that gets turned in is some kind of where is supposedly meaning excellent work, we're simply being dishonest to our students. With us now, MIT's data science podcast and professor at Washington University, Liberty Vittert. Good to see you. Um, all right. Is, there, is, it, is it just that professors are lazy and they want to give everybody A's? Is it that people are paying a lot of money and they think they deserve A's? How does it work? Well, usually people have thought that the reason that grade inflation happens is because we want to give our students a leg up in the job market and big universities are requiring this of their professors. But honestly, it's because one, it's a pain in the neck to not give A's. And two, it's really risky for professors' jobs to not give A's. Here's why. Joey, you give Joey a bad grade. So first of all, you get the incessant emails and whining from Joey. Then that doesn't work. You get the emails from Joey's parents trying to explain why Joey doesn't have an A besides the fact that his performance just wasn't A-level work. And then if that doesn't work, the accusations start to come out. You're racist or you're homophobic or I've gotten called anti-Semitic and they only back down when I pointed out that I'm Jewish. And, you know, There's no backup here for giving fair grades because as soon as one of these accusations happen, professors are thrown to the wolves of these diversity, equity, and inclusion deans at the whiff of an accusation. So not only is it a pain in the neck, it's also risky for your job. We, we, we saw in the, the previous segment what might be happening to the DEI world. I, it was interesting when you look, uh, and there was a study done at Yale, um, in terms of A's and A minuses by subject. Um, things like uh, history of science, history of medicine um, were up in the 90 percentage uh, points. And then when you got into things, uh, women in gender and sexuality studies, 92%. Mathematics, 55%. Why, why in something that is, is right, is easy to be either correct or incorrect, like math or stats or data science, like what you teach, Why is that something that people would have a leg to stand on and say, well, I deserve an A? It's simply because they know that if they complain enough or if they can they accuse enough or if they emotionally blackmail enough, they the professors will give in. That's I mean, as soon as the students know that and they do know that now, then they double down and the professors will cave, especially because the administrations won't back them up. Yeah, you think about it, the total estimated cost at Yale, $85,000 a year. Not many people are paying that. Um, does, does the cost of tuition play a role in, in this, that at some point parents say, look, I'm paying all this money. Uh, if, if I don't, you know, if my kids don't get an A, but kids at Harvard or, you know, University of Michigan or anywhere else get an A uh, because of this kind of grade inflation, um, then, well, then Johnny's not going to have his, you know, his new job at McKenzie Consulting, number one. Um, but number two, it's one thing for one college to have courage. How do you get, you know, all of professors in America or all deans in America to have courage to reverse this? Look, I mean, you can say, sure, there's entitlement among parents, but like great inflation has been around forever. We've seen a marked increase in the past couple years, just in the past mm-hmm. decade. It's not just Yale. Harvard went from giving out 60 percent of all A's to 80 percent of all A's in this past dec- decade. So it's not just Yale. It's not just entitlement. There has been this woke movement that has caused accusations. That's different than just complaining or whining. And that is what is really dangerous and scary for professors. And it's what's hurting 
wanting kids so badly. It's no longer just B plus work that kids complain and get an A. It's where kids have absolutely no mastery of the subject, are trying to get A grades, and they're getting them. And the disservice is to our kids because America's companies expect 4.0 GPA top college graduate mm. students to be able to work hard, meet deadlines, and be generally competent. And that's just not a sure bet anymore. So pretty soon, an A from Podunk University that does not grade inflate is going to become way more valuable to America's mm. companies than an A from Harvard. Look, you may not need an A for anything. There's a lot of companies now that are saying you don't need bachelor degrees, which um, exactly, <laughs> yeah, which which might hurt the universities for eighty four thousand dollars a year. All right, Liberty, uh, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Coming up next, Hunter Biden spent almost five hundred dollars a day on other women while he was married. In fact, in his first year of marriage, will Prince Hunter's latest brush with the law be the final straw for Dad? And Wall Street hedge funds make it almost impossible for Americans to buy and rent homes at affordable prices. Their Christmas mega bonuses, well, they're earned on the back of our American dream. Is there a way to fix that when we come back? Any comment on the new charges against your son, Mr. President? President Biden today ignoring questions about nine new tax evasion charges against his son, Hunter, including federal felonies. He's accused of spending millions of dollars on drugs, hookers, fast cars, just about everything except his taxes. It's no secret, of course, Hunter struggles with drugs, but the taxes were backfiled in 2020 when Hunter says he was sober. So he didn't pay his taxes while he was sober is what the allegation is. Over the course of four years, Hunter spent roughly $5 million, $700,000 on various women, $400,000 on clothing and accessories, $1.7 million on cash withdrawals. Well, you can see the documents for yourself. To give you some perspective, on a per day average, 2016 to 2019, Hunter would spend $500 a day on women, $272 a day on clothes and jewelry, and another 130 days on adult entertainment. That's every day, 365 days a year for four years. For reference, one of those years was the first year of his marriage to his new wife. With us now, civil rights attorney Robert Patillo, political consultant Sir Michael Singleton. Uh, Mr. Patillo, to you, I thought it was interesting uh, when we heard from the attorney for Mr. Hunter Biden. Same attorney, interesting enough, as Jared Kushner. So um, the uh, family of presidents is someone who Abe Lowell enjoys representing. He says, hey, look, don't worry. He said, unless it was Hunter, unless Hunter Biden's name was Biden, this would not be happening to him. Do you really believe that? I actually do, because if we look at what has happened, this money was paid back to the federal government. Uh, there was a plea deal that was in place earlier this year that would have handled these cases all together without any federal charges. If it was not for the him being named Biden, you would not have had the congressional inquiry into this. You would not have the additional scrutiny into that plea deal. And this all would have been taken care of already. So this idea that Hunter Biden, uh, if you think about the extraordinary claims that Republicans have made about Hunter Biden over the course of the last four to five years, as Carl Sagan, Sagan mm -hmm. said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. None of those things have come to fruition. And what we have now is a tax case, which is not the sexy case that Marjorie Taylor oh, Greene claimed we uh, were uh, have. We've established now that Hunter is the real victim, like O.J. will search for the real killers. Um, but, sure, Michael, I, I have to ask you uh, on this. In, Robert makes a good point. Republicans have been trying to nail, to sort of make this connection with yeah. Hunter Biden, hang Hunter Biden around Joe Biden's neck mm -hmm. for years. 
It has not worked. They have not come, come with the receipts to connect. I don't think they need to. Connect to the two men. So that, that's my question. Is it because you're not paying taxes, right? Is that something, drugs and women and hookers and all that kind of stuff, it, it's tabloid nonsense. But sure. and a lot of people will have taboos in their life, intrigue and taboo yeah. in their life. But we all pay taxes. We're all supposed to pay taxes, but none of us like to. Is the fact that the first son was not paying taxes, does that change the conversation? Absolutely, it changes the conversation. I mean, Wesley Snipes went to prison several years ago. It literally upended his entire acting career. If this was a regular American who did not have the president as their father, they would have been in prison. Now, Robert knows this. We're both gun owners who happen to be black. If any one of us lied on that application, you're going straight to jail. The only reason this guy isn't in jail is because he's the son of the president of the United States of America. And so most Americans will look at this and they'll say, here is a guy who's done a lot of slanderous things from women, from drugs, to the cars, not paying his taxes. None of us, Leland, could get away with this. Why should the president's son get away with it? And I'll just say this quickly. Republicans don't have to worry about drawing this connection to the president. The media will do that on their own because I guarantee you when they go through jury selection, once this trial starts, MSNBC, CNN, all of those darlings of the left, as some like to call them, will ask the president, will ask the White House, what does the president have to say about this? And the White House will have to respond at some point. Are you think this is going to go to, to trial, Robert? No, this is an administrative case. 93% of cases of this nature plea out before trial. And I think that's what's going to happen in this case. And as we've seen, Republicans, uh, when Marjorie Taylor Greene was showing revenge porn against Hunter Biden and the House of Representatives, she was not saying it was because it was a, it was a tax case. When James Comer was saying that Hunter Biden huh? was involved with uh, human trafficking of women, he was not saying it was a tax case. So the claims that Republicans have made against Hunter Biden have not played out and they have not presented evidence of that. I think what we have seen through, um, throughout the Clinton impeachment and even the Trump impeachment is that President's poll numbers go up when these are seen to be attacked by the other party for no reason. I think President Biden is going to get a boost out of this as opposed to what Republicans think are going to come out of this. The, the, uh, the, the, the this question isn't, uh, I disagree with Robert respectfully. The question isn't about the president's involvement. The question is, is the president's son getting special treatment because he's the son of the president of the United States? And for most people, they're going to look at that and say yes. The secondary question is, if you're a person of color who votes overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party, whether you're a Latino or African-American, would you get the same privilege or leeway as a president's son? Robert, you know darn well as a civil rights attorney, the question, the answer to that question is simply no. So this isn't necessarily about the president. It's about the president's son getting special privilege. And so the question does become, and, and one can't deny this, if the president is supposed to lead the country while his family is in shambles, can he do so effectively? To, and I think the question is no. To, to, to be fair, right, Robert, I think we can end on this. Uh, Abe Wall says, you know, he, he would not be prosecuted if his name was not Biden. Uh, he wouldn't have gotten all those juicy contracts to make all that money if his name wasn't Biden either. Um, and it is Democrats, I think we should point out, uh, Robert, who said, of course, that uh, no man is above the law, right? Rich white people get special treatment. Breaking news. Who knew that happened? <laughs> Rich white people. Oh, my God. Things Even if they're a Democrat, Robert? We've got to give this one to Robert. America. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right, Robert. Uh, we'll, we'll see you in studio next time, my friend. Safe travels home for yeah, Michael. Absolutely. It's always fun. Thanks, Leland. Thanks, Robert. The exploding costs of single-family homes and rent since the pandemic doesn't come from an explosion of demand. 
but more likely from a concerted effort by hedge funds to make more money, reminding us of a scene from It's a Wonderful Life. It's that time of year again. Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life's disdain of the single homeowner, the American dream, the man seeking the American dream, is akin to today's hedge funds. Take a look. You're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broke them down? That they, they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? The current rules allow billionaires to get richer by putting the American dream out of reach for hardworking Americans. Between January 2020 and January 2023, rents for a two-bed detached home increased 44% in Tampa, 43% in Phoenix, 35% near Atlanta, 24% nationwide. Wages, of course, didn't increase anywhere near that. Billionaire-backed hedge funds now compete with average Americans for the starter home. Compete. They normally win when they're trying to buy homes. And thus, it's the hedge funds, not the means of everyday Americans, that set the price for the American dream. Take, for example, Bradfield Farms, a community on the outskirts of Charlotte. As this map from the New York Times shows, the red dots highlight 50% of the homes that were sold in Bradfield between 2021 and 2022. They were all bought by large investors who paid in cash. See that? All those homes could have been bought by people trying to pursue the American dream. The first-time homebuyers just can't compete with big cash offers. A new bill in Congress could fix the problem. It requires hedge funds to sell at least 10% of their single-family homes that they currently own to families per year over a 10-year period. After the 10-year phase-out, all hedge funds would be completely banned from owning any single-family home. You can imagine the hedge funds will spend an awful lot of money on Capitol Hill to try and stop this. We'll let you know if the rest of Congress sides with the billionaires or the American dream. Next, Hamas has released this videos of its fighters stalking Israeli troops from underground Gaza. Then why on earth are people outraged when Israel strips captives to their shorts Why Israel can do no right? Outrage growing over video of detained Palestinians. Men stripped down to their underwear, kneeling in rows with hands behind their backs. New and disgusting images this morning. Outrage growing over video of detained Palestinians. Men stripped down to their underwear, kneeling in rows with hands behind their backs. The human rights group says they were also severely abused. Mass just in the last hour has condemned what has happened. Hamas has condemned it. It must be bad. That's just some of the coverage from CNN and others. Let's focus for just a minute on what Poppy Harlow of CNN said, quote, new and disgusting images. Poppy's never been a foreign correspondent, so she may not know, but let me explain, because I have been. War is hell. Hamas purposely dresses their fighters in civilian clothes. In and of itself, that means they give up their Geneva protections. It's well documented by the IDF. This is video from a Hamas helmet cam that the IDF captured. They, as you can see, the Hamas fighters are not wearing anything to identify them as members of Hamas. And in the past, suicide bombers pretended to surrender and then blew themselves up, killing Israelis. 
Hence, the IDF makes military-age men in areas where civilians evacuated from weeks ago to strip to their underwear when they surrender. There is zero evidence they were beaten or abused, zero evidence that they were in any way subject to torture or subject to any of the kinds of issues or humiliation that the hostages were when they were paraded in the streets, beaten and abused. What Hamas did with civilian hostages versus what Israel does with prisoners of war. These are prisoners of war. They were treated like prisoners of war. And for some reason, CNN finds it disgusting. With us now, KT McFarland, Deputy National Security Advisor in the Trump administration. KT, it's good to see you. Um, at some point, I feel like we go beyond double standard just to the point that the, the Israelis in the, in the minds of the media and perhaps even in the Biden administration's mind can't do anything right. Yeah, it's absolutely. And this is the narrative. You know, what about if we say that a good percentage of those people who had their hands tied behind their backs and they were kneeling were, in fact, Hamas terrorists and Hamas fighters? Is that OK? I mean, is, is somehow the mainstream media, the Biden administration saying, well, you know, we have to really protect the rights of the Hamas terrorists who are killing and murdering Israelis? You know, war is hell. And this particularly this this kind of war is hell because Hamas doesn't just murder Israelis and Jews. They don't just hide behind their own citizens as human shields. They want their own citizens to die because they want the PR value. Hamas understands it cannot defeat Israel on the battlefield, nor on the economic field, or really any other field. The only way they win is because they want to flip the narrative and have the international community condemn Israel, and then Hamas wins. And the only way they do that is the kind of pictures you're seeing. You know, I think about these pictures, um, and then I think about the pictures from Gitmo, right? You know, the, 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 yeah. the terror, same thing, terrorists shackled, blindfolded, somewhere in earmuffs, on and on and on. And if you think back to that time, the coverage was kind of, well, kind of the same. Take a listen. All right, so uh, we there was this very similar coverage, right, right. Uh, of of how ter- of how terrible everybody was treating the terrorists, and I'm wondering. It seems like we haven't learned anything. Yeah, you know, the whole point of this is that Hamas and and their Iran masters and their Iran's proxies they want to make you hate Israel. This is anti-Semitic. It's anti-Israel. They're not going to be happy with. A peaceful and solution. KT, I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. I hear that we do have the sound. Take a listen. Ah, okay, good. A new UN investigation finds conditions inside the American prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, are cruel, inhuman, and degrading. They're charged with nothing. They're charged with absolutely nothing. Um, they are being held now under a designation of enemy combatant, uh, but they've never had a hearing even to determine if they're enemy combatants. I will tell you that. Um, my clients and the majority of the people in Guantanamo were not picked up on any battlefield. I guess this would be my question, right? And yes, being stripped to your underwear, having your hands tied behind your back uh, and blindfolded, that is degrading. Okay, there's, there's no question about that. My question is, what else are you supposed to do and how else are you supposed to hold terrorists who want to kill you? Well, that's the whole point. They don't think these people are terrorists and they don't think that, I mean, their, their, their mindset, their whole way of looking at the world is Israel's bad. Anything Israel does, bad. Anything that Jews do, bad. This is the new anti-Semitism, whether it's on college campuses, whether it's in, you know, in the Middle East. I mean, whether it's Harvard, 
the University of Pennsylvania or my alma mater, MIT, president sitting there in Congress testifying and refusing to condemn genocide. The world is flipped all around in Israel, sadly. You know, Israel is the one that is blamed for all this. I was at the UN last night. I went to the reception, and I walked through the visitor's entrance, and there's this long display from the United Nations talking about the poor, oppressed Palestinian people, the terrible Israelis who are oppressing them. This is the narrative. This is the left's narrative. This is the, you know, the, the European narrative. And scratch the surface, it's anti-Israel, but it's really anti-Semitic. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's sort of the, the where where it is. All right, um, I would say it's even more than anti-Semitic. I'd say it's sort of anti anti-Jew and, and sort of yeah. glorifying the killing of Jewish people. It's, there's there's it's kind of ratcheted up. KT, it's good to see you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. We invite you to sign up for War Notes. Gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. Go to WarNotes.com and subscribe. The notes started as our internal email discussion about the most important events of the day. It's literally how we put the show together. You get to be a part of it. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media at Leland Vittert on Instagram and Twitter. That's warnotes.com and subscribe for free. Overnight, a random degenerate on the New York subway pummeled a Jewish man wearing traditional religious garb. Uh, On the victim's way home, the suspect on your screen reportedly walked up to him, called him a dirty Jew, and began punching him repeatedly. He ended up in the hospital, and this guy stole his phone. It's amazing how people are wearing masks again. The yelling dirty Jew makes it pretty clear this is a hate crime. Crystal clear. There is no discussion. It's still very much unclear if the shooting of three Arab men in Vermont had anything to do with hate, but that didn't stop the network newscast from going wall to wall with the rise of Islamophobia. So we have an actual hate crime where a Jewish man is attacked for being Jewish on the first night of Hanukkah, and nobody cares, including the White House. The same White House who cares deeply about Islamophobia who issued a statement on the killing, or sorry, on the shooting of the three Palestinians. They didn't die. We still know if it's a hate crime, but the White House issued a statement. This is Temple Israel in Albany, New York, where a man yelled free Palestine as he opened fire at the synagogue where the children inside there, thankfully nobody was hurt. The kids were plenty scared. Here's the suspect. You won't see his face on the nightly network news. But if that temple had been a mosque during Ramadan, every newscast would have a correspondent tonight discussing the fears of Islamophobia. And you bet Vice President Kamala Harris would already be out with a statement. Something else you won't hear about this weekend? The 180 hostages, including eight Americans, held in hell, otherwise known as Gaza. If you like me, you're getting ready for a great weekend. Maybe you're going to a holiday party. Maybe you're going out with the family to get a Christmas tree. Well, just for a second, put that on pause. And there's 180 hostages, so that's a lot to think about. So let's just think about one. Think about this woman in particular. Her abduction, mistreatment, humiliation at the hands of Hamas. This is the video from October 7th. These are pictures Hamas are proud of. And if we freeze the frame for a second, you can see the fear on her face. You can see the blood on her cheek. Her name is Nama, Nama Levy. So think about Nama's mother. It's been two months since that video was taken. That's the last image she has of her daughter. It's the second night of Hanukkah. We don't have to wonder what Nama's mother is thinking. She told us. She writes of those women, girls really, many just like her daughter. There are 17 young women still in captivity. They range in age from 18 to 26. I think of what they and my Nama could be subjected to at every moment of the day. Each minute 
is an eternity in hell. There are 180 hostages, but for each hostage, there's a mother and a father, sometimes kids, often siblings. There are thousands held hostage, some physically in Gaza, others emotionally. Time is passing through an hourglass, her mother wrote. The sands are not infinite. We'll be right back. USA Today reports that Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has reached out to the Libertarian Party in Iowa to require to inquire about running for president on a Libertarian ticket. I met up with Vivek in Iowa last summer. Well, there he is. Now in December, following performance of the News Nation debate that was widely panned, well, Vivek's 15 minutes may be done. Chris is here. I don't know. I, you th- you th- we didn't talk at all after the debate about a loser in the debate. I think it would have to be Vivek. He certainly got beat up by the panels. That's for sure. Uh, and, you know, I know online there was some uh, crossfire also, but I really discount that. I, I have a growing suspicion that so much of what is on social media is manipulated and fake uh, mm. that I've really kind of devalued it. But uh, certainly on the stage, he was the least popular person. None of them really shook his hand or said anything to him that I could see after the debate. But we'll know in the numbers, you know, and in terms of him trying to find another ticket, is, all these parties are just articles of convenience now anyway. It's not about principles. You don't really know what makes them left. Oh, well, the right is about more fiscal conservativeness and the left is about more social spending. They all spend and they do nothing with policy agendas. It's just all convenience. So he might as well stay in. Uh, He's got the money to, and that's really what matters. Fair enough. All right, have a good weekend. Congrats on a great week. Awesome interview last night with RFK. Important. Really I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again. I love sharing history moments with you, um, right. you know, because you'll always remember them about who you were with. You know, that debate mm. mattered. It changed the state of play. It was great to share it with you. I look forward to all the big moments uh, on the campaign to come. And I wish you a good weekend, buddy. All right. We'll talk soon. Coming up next, Army-Navy, how the greatest rivalry in sports keeps its traditions strong, very strong, 124 years later. Stickway climaxes a 59-yard drive as he carries the last 10 yards for the first score of the game, and Army leads 7-0. Navy's brilliant passer, Roger Staubach, tosses 11 passes and makes the important ones count, like this toss to Johnny Sy that brings the ball to the 12. Tomorrow is the 124th meeting of sports' greatest rivalry. And as college football fans, specifically as Alabama Crimson Tide fans, we say that advisedly. Nothing matches the tradition, the pageantry, the romance of Army-Navy. The only game in history where every player on the field has sworn an oath to die for, well, all the people watching off the field. John McKenna, former Navy football player, Former Army football player Tyler Shebel is with us. Gentlemen, nice to see you. All right, Tyler, you win the background uh, here as we take your shot full with the helmet. I'm always reminded by, unlike I think any other college sports teams, how players for Army, players for Navy, 
um, so much of their life is then defined not by them playing football, but by what they did after that. And it's different than for most college players. Yeah, thanks, Leland. Appreciate you having us. Um, it's a it's a really special game, and and um, you know it's one of the better days of my life walking off the field having beaten Navy. But you know, as far as accomplishments go, it definitely pales in comparison to some of the things that we get to do uh, in, in service to the country. Yeah, um, you know, beating beating Navy is an unusual feeling. I mean, I, just to be fair, Navy does lead uh, 62-54, seven ties. Current win streak, Army won. Uh, John, why why is this rivalry what it is? How did this come to be so important in the American ethos? It's a great question, Leland. Thanks for uh, having us on today. The game is it's more than a game, number one. And it usually, you know, when you go to a particular school and your family goes there, Army-Navy affects all the hundreds, tens of thousands of uh, men and women serving our country. And usually somebody has some relationship to the military, some type of background. So it, there's, it, it touches all the families, not just the two schools like a, an Alabama and Auburn type game. This affects the entire country. I don't know why you mentioned the name Auburn on television. It doesn't need to be said. They're <laughs> inferior in every way. But, hey, you know, look, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Tyler, I, I'm thinking about a couple of years ago. And 10, 15 years ago, when the American military um, was so front and center in everybody's mind because of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and now it is not. And I'm wondering how you think that that changes tomorrow. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the last game I played in was the Army-Navy game that occurred about two and a half, three months after 9-11. And, you know, the president came. It was incredibly patriotic. Um, I have to assume it was really well viewed, but, you know, I can remember sort of the pageantry of the day. And, and you know, as a player, you just want to get out there and, and beat the other team. Um, but, you know, I think I think the focus on the game sort of ebbs and flows with the focus on patriotism in the country. You know, and, yeah. and when we're at war and the military can be front and center, the game seems to maybe matter to the ethos of the country a little bit more. But I don't think it it matters at all any way different to the players uh, whatsoever. You know, John played in peacetime. Um, yeah. I, I believe John yeah. played mostly in peacetime. And I can tell you, he probably 